0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Elizabeth Hernandez of Denver can work from home during the pandemic. Most of her family can't. And yet, they're not traditionally what we'd think of as essential workers, but it's essential they make ends meet.
1: My family largely works in the Las Vegas service industry. My mom works in a spa, and my dad is a bartender.
0: Hernandez has seen two of her relatives die of COVID-19 and more get sick. It's the latest story we're sharing of pandemic life. Then, on Pearl Harbor Day, the role Colorado women played fighting World War II. Rosie the Riveter is only a sliver of the picture. Also, a December treat. From Two Buttes, Colorado, country singer Claire Dunn is back with us.
2: Drinking mother-
3: Support Colorado Public Radio today on Colorado Gives Day at coloradogives.org. Colorado Gives Day is an annual statewide movement to celebrate and increase philanthropy through online giving. Thanks to a million dollar incentive fund, when you choose CPR as the nonprofit recipient of your donation, your gift will go even further. Colorado Gives Day ends at midnight tonight. Thank you for making a difference at coloradogives.org.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In the pandemic, there are the people who've been able to stay at home and those who must go in to work. It's a difference that is painfully clear to Elizabeth Hernandez of Denver. On Thanksgiving, her cousin died of COVID-19, and he was not the first in the family to get the virus.
1: My family largely works in the Las Vegas service industry. My mom works in a spa, and my dad is a bartender, um, and a lot of my family works in hotels or otherwise in food and beverage type of stuff. So I am constantly worried about their safety and their health, and they have to go to work to put food on the table and to make a living. um, So they don't have the choice to work from home like I do, which is a real privilege that I have.
0: If Fernandez's name is familiar, it's because you may have seen her byline in the Denver Post. She covers higher education. And as you heard, she can largely do so from the safety of her home. Her family in Las Vegas, not so much. She counts at least five relatives who've gotten sick.
1: And then my grandma, who lived in a nursing home, passed away this summer. So that wasn't necessarily the service industry, but those are all interconnected of people just living in a community together. And the people that they're interacting with are largely just there to have a good time. Like they're having bachelor parties or just going out to party or whatever. Um, it's not like going to a grocery store where you need to go to a grocery store or, you know, hospital workers where they obviously need to care for people. It's like, these are people who are just choosing to, you know, I, I feel bored. I want to go out and go get a spa treatment or go out and, you know, go to a bar with my friends. Um, I would hope for my family that they would not have to make the choice between, you know, paying rent and starving to exposing themselves. And what that means, I don't know. I don't know, like, the policies, the public policy that would enable that. But it's a difficult situation to, to have to be in.
0: What Hernandez does know is education policy, which she covers every day. Hernandez points out she's the first in her family to attend college, an experience that she says informs her reporting.
1: In Colorado, higher ed is funded so poorly. We're one of the worst funded states in the nation for higher ed before the pandemic. Um, And now because of the pandemic, that has been butchered even further, the budget for higher ed. And so that puts education in a really precarious place. It could mean fewer services for students, it could mean professors and staff and all of those people have taken furloughs and pay cuts and um, have been let go, you know, it could mean a lot of serious repercussions for higher education. So I'm trying to both tell kind of the financial story of that, but also the the human story. How is this impacting students and staff and professors and, and everybody?
0: Especially, she says, students who, like herself, relied on financial aid, which is now at risk.
1: A lot of the services would be for the students who, you know, need them most, who are low income or who otherwise, you know, are, are maybe struggling or um, need extra support in school. So it puts those at risk. And, and usually it's the institutions that serve those kinds of students that are most underfunded. So like Adams State, which does great work and, and serves a lot of underrepresented students and Metro Um, which is a commuter school and provides, you know, really affordable education, those are oftentimes the institutions that face the biggest cuts as well.
0: Hernandez sees parallels between her family life and her beat at the Denver Post.
1: I think a lot of the times, you know, people who are often on the front lines are people in more essential service jobs that tend to be lower income. And a lot of lower income people tend to be different races. And yeah, I mean, especially in education, I was reporting on who had access to internet and who had, you know, the broadband capabilities to do online schooling. And all of these things are so class-based and race-based. So those are things that I, I paid attention to as well. And who's struggling and what are the struggles and who has frontline jobs that's in school? What are students struggling with? All of these sorts of things are things we need to consider when reporting.
0: So even as she covers the pandemic and its effects on colleges and universities, Elizabeth Hernandez thinks of her extended family in Las Vegas and wonders if it's the one area where she's not able to get the full story.
1: I do worry that they don't tell me things because I'm so worried about them um, and always communicate that. My dad at one point, my stepbrother had COVID who was living with him. Um, and I was like, are you sick? And he sounded kind of stuffed up on the phone and he was like, no, I'm fine. I was like, uh, I don't know if you are. Yeah, it is a concern for me that maybe they are just trying to make me feel better. I don't know, but.
0: <laughs> Elizabeth Hernandez, another Coloradan who shared her pandemic experience with us. And if you'd like to tell your story, email Matters at CPR.org. That's Matters at CPR.org. So right now, the state's in a third wave of coronavirus. Early in the pandemic, it became clear that African-Americans and Latinos were getting sick and dying at higher rates in Colorado and nationally. As CPR health reporter John Daly explains, another group in Colorado is affected disproportionately Native Americans.
4: In mid-November, Parkview Medical Center in Pueblo reached an unnerving milestone it hadn't seen before. It hit capacity, essentially overrun with patients. Dr. Sandeep Vijan says they had to move ER patients to Colorado Springs and Denver. These were extraordinarily busy days. We didn't have any inpatient capacity available. Vijan says many of those hospitalized are Latino. Many of those he sees are older, often on Medicare, and living in nursing homes. They also tend to have poor access to primary care and a host of chronic conditions. They're very vulnerable. There's no question. This segment of society gets COVID-19. They tend to have more severe infections. They tend to be hospitalized at a greater frequency. So I think what we're seeing today is exactly what we saw in the first wave. State data bear that out, showing that just like early in the pandemic, Hispanic and Black Coloradans are still dying and being hospitalized at disproportionately higher rates. And right now... COVID-19 cases are spiking around the state, especially for Native Americans and Hispanics.
5: In the last couple of weeks, um, we've really seen an exponential rise with even more sick patients.
4: That's Dr. Pamela Valenza, chief health officer with Clinica Tepeyac. It's a community health center serving Denver's mostly Latino Globeville neighborhood. The clinic runs a test site. Valenza says in November, nearly half of its patients tested positive, its highest month to date.
5: We've seen a number of different families with multiple family members positive. We know families who've had multiple deaths.
4: The third wave is also accelerating other pressures. Juan Carlos hernandez Barraza is a behavioral health provider at Clinica Tepiak.
6: What I'm really seeing is higher rates of anxiety, higher rates of depression. I think across the clinic, we've also seen higher substance as well.
4: The third wave is also affecting Coloradans who previously weren't as hard hit. State data show infections among Native Americans shot up in recent weeks. Karen Hoffman directs primary care for Denver Indian Health and Family Services. She says after a surge last spring, things were quiet, but now a lot more patients are testing positive. We're seeing two to five positive tests per week, where we were going weeks without seeing
5: any positives during the summer.
4: Many work in service industry jobs or use public transit, both of which bring more risk of transmission. Hoffman says there are other factors driving the spread, poverty, homelessness, and a distrust of institutions, including the health system.
5: In the metro area, there's a very large financial disparity. So there's just, again, that poverty. Underlying poverty is difficult for any culture, but especially when you just don't have the trust of the
4: government to help you. Hoffman says many of her indigenous patients live in multi-generational homes, where keeping a distance is hard. There was one particular family where they think dad got it at work. Then he and mom both ended up in the hospital. Three of five
5: daughters got it, two of like eight grandchildren, because they all live in the same home. They're not
4: really able to isolate themselves. Dr. Taman Osborne-Roberts is a family physician and was the first person of color elected as president of the Colorado Medical Society. He thinks Colorado needs a deeper look at underlying causes of its enduring health disparities.
6: I think that the state is well overdue for a top-to-bottom analysis, a recommendation for a series of changes in regards to health equity and health justice.
4: Osborne Roberts says a Blue Ribbon Commission on Health Reform more than a decade ago paved the way for far-reaching changes in the state to insurance and services for vulnerable communities.
6: I think it's time for, if you will, perhaps a little facetiously, a black or brown ribbon commission partnering with many different entities within the state to comprehensively address these issues so that some of the disparities that we're seeing do not occur in any future pandemics.
4: Osborne Roberts says once the immediate crisis is over, he hopes to see state leadership take that on. I'm John Daly, CPR News.
0: And we'll be right back with the head of the state Republican Party, Congressman Ken Buck, is trying to walk a fine line between declaring Colorado's election safe while not commenting on the national picture. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, And I'm Avery Lil. Inviting you to the 5th Annual Colorado Matters Holiday Extravaganza.
1: This year, it's a virtual show featuring guests Ron Miles, Beth Malone, Avornine, Susan Grace, and many others.
0: The box office is closing soon for our virtual premiere this Wednesday night. Buy your ticket now at cpr.org slash holiday. Sponsored by First Western Trust. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The head of Colorado's Republican Party is trying to reassure members of the GOP that there's no evidence of widespread voter fraud in the state. Representative Ken Buck and other Republican election officials held an hour-long call last week to address concerns. This effort comes as President Trump continues to push unfounded claims of widespread election fraud nationally. After the call, Buck spoke with CPR's public affairs reporter Benta Berkland. She asked if he's seen increased concern among Republicans about a lack of confidence in the election system moving forward.
6: Because of what's going on nationally, I think a lot of Colorado Republicans are concerned about what's going on in Colorado. And uh, hopefully, this call uh, eased some of those concerns. Uh, I'm sure it didn't ease all. There are a number of people who are uh, they they uh, are willing to base their concerns on less than complete evidence. But the uh, presentation by the clerk and recorders, I thought, was uh, persuasive and. They are uh, really experts in this area and passionate about uh, honest and and clean elections. And and I think uh, a lot of the people that listened tonight would draw the conclusion that in Colorado, we have a good election system.
5: What would you say is your biggest concern if voters, citizens and especially conservative voters don't have confidence in the state's election system or, or even in other states' election systems?
6: Yeah, I think it's it's unfortunate, and and it really undermines uh, our uh, way of electing um, individuals, and and that's what I think the biggest concern is. And and I I understand that there are a lot of people on the other side of the aisle that uh, think that you know this is all conspiracy theory and whatnot. These concerns should be run down because there's there's really very few things we do in this country that are as important as not only conducting honest elections but also convincing the public that the elections were honest and so rather than being dismissive and rather than uh, being um, uh, really elitist in a lot of ways people should take this seriously because the same concerns that republicans have when democrats win elections democrats have when republicans win elections and to be able to uh, run this down one would be educational and making sure that we know the system that we're dealing with, but two, would, would, I believe, satisfy all Coloradans, all Americans, that that we have a a system
5: that has integrity. Attorney General William Barr declared that there was no evidence of widespread voter fraud that could change the outcome of the 2020 election. Are you satisfied with that?
6: Yeah, and I'm not going to get into the national election or what happened in Georgia or Pennsylvania or Michigan. I, I will say, in Colorado, from my conversations with uh, clerks and recorders in, in different parts of the state, uh, I am satisfied that uh, we have a uh, a system that has integrity in, in Colorado.
5: You know, when we talked to a lot of Republican voters leading up to the election in Colorado, they said they were confident in our system uh, relatively, but were concerned about other states. And I'm wondering if you don't address the other states And some of the baseless claims we're we're hearing from the president, how does that boost people's confidence? You know, if I mean, aren't the election officials in Georgia and Michigan also trying to act with integrity? And plenty of them are Republicans, too. So how can we square that with, you know, Colorado? Because we're we're not an island. And I think a lot of this has been focused on the presidential race.
6: Yeah, and and that's a really good uh, attempt to get me to talk about the national elections. I live in Colorado. I'm elected in Colorado. I uh, uh, deal on a regular basis with clerk and quarters and the secretary of state in Colorado, and I'm comfortable uh, discussing Colorado. I have no idea what they do in Detroit. I have no idea what they do in Philadelphia. I have no idea what they do in in Atlanta. Um, And and so I, I can't talk about those. I think it's perfectly fair to quote the attorney general, And if if that gives Colorado voters comfort, that's great. But I I can't talk about the integrity of of the elections in other states.
5: Are you ready to say President-elect Joe Biden?
6: I am ready to say President-elect Joe Biden when uh, when the uh, secretaries of state of those states certify the election.
5: Have you heard anything that this could impact turnout or... Um, I guess, moving forward, what kind of ramifications could you see if people don't gain more confidence? Maybe some people who've lost a little bit of confidence in the system recently.
6: Well, first of all, I don't think it's a large percentage of the people that have lost confidence. I, I, I think it's a fairly small percentage. And and secondly, I think that uh, the real downside of this is that people stop participating in an election system if they don't believe that it is uh, fair and, and accurate. And and the last thing that I think we want as a country is to have people who are turned off uh, by our form of government, because then they don't obey the laws. They don't respect uh, the uh, officials who have been elected and the integrity of the decisions from those officials. And so I think that that is a, a major concern. And that's why I really would ask the other side to to help in running down these uh, potential issues and, and make sure that we uh, have all Americans um, fully invested in the outcome of our elections.
5: Thanks, Congressman.
6: Thank you for uh, the questions.
0: Republican Ken Buck speaking with CPR public affairs reporter Benta Berkland about addressing voter confidence in the state's election system. The attack on Pearl Harbor 79 years ago today brought World War II to American soil. In short order, thousands of Colorado women joined the war effort by enlisting in the military, working in defense plants, and volunteering in all sorts of ways. Army Nurse Corps Lieutenant Leela Allen Morrison was among them. A note that her experiences are quite graphic— She took care of hemorrhaging soldiers in a hospital tent near the front lines in Germany, mixing powdered plasma with sterile water.
7: I promised myself I would not show fear because if I had been in their place, I wouldn't have wanted a nurse working on me, giving me IVs and whatnot with a shaky hand.
0: That is a 2014 recording of Morrison made at a senior residence in Windsor. She also helped as the Allies liberated the Buchenwald concentration camp. A survivor told her how he evaded death by hiding in a pile of corpses. As he showed her around the camp, she struggled to understand what had happened there.
7: This is just all to myself, and I was thinking, that's absolutely a factory of murder. That's the only way I knew to describe it, and I couldn't understand how one human, I don't care what he looks like, who he is, or where he's from, or what, how could you do that to your worst enemy?
0: Well, a Denver historian weaves Morrison's experiences with scores of others in her new book, Colorado Women in World War II, and Gail Beaton, welcome to the program.
7: Thank you, Ryan. Glad to be here.
0: You write that four months before Pearl Harbor, a Denver journalist named Mildred McClellan Melville predicted the war was coming to America. She said, it would not just be a man's war at the front. It will be a civilian war reaching into every kitchen and nursery. It will be a war not only of bombs, but also of butter. Talk about prescient lines, huh?
7: Exactly. Yes. Well, you know, you would say that women did everything, in in a short answer. But I like to think of it as the women doing five different layers. They enlisted in the military. They worked in the defense plants. They, you know, filed thousands and thousands of papers as office per- personnel. Of course, the physical sustenance of ranchers and farmers and victory gardens, and then all the morale uh, activities that they did on the home front. Very key in winning the war.
0: And so that term war of butter, I think that it captures the fact that even if you weren't directly volunteering for, for instance, the Defense Department, uh, people saw themselves and women especially as having a role, if that was at home on a ranch, as you say.
7: Definitely. Everyone felt like they had a part in winning this war. And they often said, you know, we just did it. It was something we were required not required to do, but the nation needed us.
0: Were you surprised in researching this book by some of the roles that women played in World War II? Uh, were, were there learning experiences for you as well as a historian?
7: Oh, there were tons of learning experiences. I mean, I had no idea. First off, the, the amount of jobs and the variety of jobs that have to be done, you know, people stuffing oiled soaked rags down gun turrets to make sure that they stay um, working or women who are air traffic controllers uh, watching the planes come in at Stapleton and listening to four different radios at the time. Um, Army and Navy were nurses that were air evacuation. This is the first time we have air evacuation in the military. Mm-hmm. Um, so very, I was stunned. I was stunned. I, uh, it was amazing.
0: Yeah, why don't you think this history is better known?
7: I think we're seeing more of an emphasis on finding the unknown or the hidden uh, people in the past, whether it's women or men of color or just women in general. Uh, I think probably the 100th anniversary of the suffrage 19th Amendment has helped bring some of these things to the forefront, as well as the fact that we're losing these veterans um, left and right. You know, they're in their mid to late 90s at this point, men and women.
0: Yeah, I think that's really painful for me too as a journalist to know that we have these Coloradans with direct experiences in World War II. And it feels as if there's a rush to speak with them and to document these stories. And Gail, you made reference to the fact that uh, women were essential to the war effort, including women of color who thus faced not just sexism, but racism. And I think of the story of Alita Crane of Denver Uh, an African-American in the Women's Army Corps. She attended officer candidate school in Des Moines, and even taking a shower was a challenge. Tell us about that.
7: Yes, Alita and two other um, African-American officer candidates had to live in a private home off the base of Fort Des Moines. And every morning they'd get up, they'd shrug into their big overcoats, Uh, military-issued, of course, walk across town to the barracks where they would shower before the white officer candidates arose. Um, Olita would say that this was one of the benefits of being a black woman in the WAC because she didn't have to uh, live in a barrack all crammed in with 300 other women. Hmm. She didn't have to wait in line. Um, So this was kind of a benefit, but obviously one of the very few benefits of being a black woman in a segregated uh, army corps.
0: And it was that, it was segregation that meant separate housing for her.
7: Yes. Yes.
0: And that was really just the tip of the iceberg when it came to racism that Crane faced during both her military and non-military work during the war. What else did she have to deal with?
7: Well... Before she enlisted in the WAC, she was a uh, employee at the Denver Ordnance Plant, and she was originally hired in one of the three positions that women did there, black women did, and that would be restrooms, cafeteria, or the lead shop, which of course is dangerous. It wasn't until later that the plant opened it up to black women to be able to work on the production line and as inspectors. So she was discriminated there also. They also, at the Denver Ordnance Plant, didn't have their own... Um, restroom in their particular building. So they had to go across the plant in order to use the facilities. And then when she was in the military, they had uh, segregated pools. Uh, Well, not segregated, but they had the pools where the white women swam on Mondays. And then when Olita brought her Unit in to use the pool, they often told them, Oh no, the time has been changed, you're not swimming this week, or something like that. Hmm. If they did end up swimming, then um, the authorities made sure that the pool was cleaned or decant contaminated, as they said, after the black women swam.
0: You made reference to the lead shop, and I'm not certain what that is. Is that where they would make bullets, or
7: yes, um, bullet? contained lead, and so the women had to work with the lead, and lead is toxic, so uh, the women's blood levels were tested every three weeks. If the level was too high, they were removed from the lead shop and reassigned restroom or cafeteria duty, which, of course, is much lower pay. It's not a production wage. Hmm. Um, Then if their lead levels were fine, they were put back under the lead shop. So originally at the plant, there was only black women in the restrooms and the cafeterias and the lead shop. Um, until there was a threat of a lawsuit against Remington Arms, who ran the plant.
0: Why did Olita Crane w- want to join the military? I mean, especially when you hear the circumstances that she faced.
7: Oh, she saw an advertisement uh, that said, join the army band and help win the war. So she thought, this is great. I'm a saxophone and cornet player. What could be better than joining the Army and getting to play my musical instrument? Well, of course, once she joined, she found out that the WAC band was not for uh, African-American soldiers. It was simply for uh, Anglo women. Later, they did establish a fifth um, band, and that was uh, comprised of African-Americans. But by then, Alita had moved on her way with Officer Candidate School.
0: You made reference to WAC, so Women's Army Corps, and anyone associated with the military knows that there are just a ton of acronyms. And that was true as well for women's service. So many acronyms applying to various uh, organizations within the military that women served in. What were some of the others?
7: Well, you had the WAVES. That would be the Women Accepted for Volunteer Emergency Service. That's the um, Navy, obviously. Then the Coast Guard was SPAR which stands for Semper Paratus, Always Ready. That's the motto of the Coast Guard. You also had, um, of course, the ANC, the Army Nurse Corps, and the NNC, the Navy Nurse Corps. But you also had um, the Marines were the last to open up the doors to women, and the Commandant said they will simply be Marines. They will not have any cute little nickname. Some people wanted to call them Glam Marines or Submarines, um, but the men the male marines did come up with an acronym for these women reservists and they called them bams b a m s which stood for broad-assed marines
0: huh. some of it's awfully mean-spirited submarines i mean i get that it's a reference of course to the to the vessels but it also is a sense of being less than yes uh-huh There were women who served as pilots during the war, World War II, known as uh, WASPs, Women Air Force Service Pilots. Uh, Why don't we hear what you wrote about WASP Peggy Moynihan of Montrose, Colorado. She had just performed her pre-flight safety checks on a recently repaired airplane. Are you ready with that passage?
7: I am. Great. Great. Satisfied that she and the BT-13 Volte trainer were ready to test its repairs, she taxied down the runway. On her climb over Bainbridge, Georgia, the plane flipped into a spin. Soon, she was going down faster than she had gone up. Summoning the good Lord upstairs, she popped the stick. Nothing. She popped it a second time. Again, nothing. Still careening toward the earth, she popped it a third time. Finally, she pulled out of the spin. Finding a safe place, Moynihan held the plane steady as she landed. Unbuckling her harness, she jumped out and began inspecting the basic trainer. Realizing that the airfoils were not receiving the correct airflow, she ran her hand along the plane. bubblegum A huge wad was stuck on the wing. (coughs) Removing her gloves, she pried it off. Refusing to dwell on how and why the gum had come to be on the aircraft, Moynihan lifted off and completed the test flight. Without its added decoration, the Volte flew fine. Bubblegum.
0: I mean, in the context that we've been speaking, it makes me think if someone did that on purpose. But do you you have a sense if that's true?
7: Yes, I do. Uh, There were instances of mechanics sabotaging the planes. Uh, Fortunately, it wasn't many instances, but there was one particular woman who died, and Jacqueline Cochran, the director of the program, It was later reported that she found that there was sugar in the gasoline tank, um, which, of course, would, you know, not allow the plane to fly properly.
0: Because it was women at the helm?
7: Yes. Gosh. Um, You know, the the women pilots are really going into a very um, manly male area. Uh, much more so than, you know, being a clerk or driving the, the motor vehicles around base or something like that. Um, that, I think, was a threat to, to some people.
0: So, uh, Becky Moynihan of Montrose was actually a test pilot. Yes. And is that a role that you knew going into this project that women had played?
7: I knew that they had flown. I wasn't sure of all their different roles. Uh, the WASP, who went through the same training as male pilots, flew every type of military aircraft during World War II. So they were test pilots, but they also ferried airplanes. They transported officials from one end of the country to another. And one of the more interesting things they did, uh, and dangerous, was being uh, towing targets for gunnery practice. So they would drag a pull, a large canvas banner, like you would see, you know, flying over Mile High Stadium, you know, will you marry me sort of thing. Mm. But this one, um, as they flew over, the men practicing their gunnery skills would be shooting at this airplane. And when it came down, they would inspect the canvas, and the ammunition had um, was marked with paint, like blue and yellow and pink and green. And this way they could tell where the... Um, shots had been fired. And of course, sometimes they found that the plane itself had been hit. So I I always find it amazing that you'd be up there in this airplane and, you know, you'd hear something here hit your airplane. Um, Must have been amazing. Yeah.
0: I can tell in writing this, you've, you've tried to place yourselves in their shoes and in their controls. Uh, Gail, thanks so much for being with us. We're really grateful for your time. Thank you. Historian Gail Beaton's latest book is Colorado Women in World War II. We also heard earlier from Army Nurse Corps Lieutenant Leela Allen Morrison of Windsor. She's now in her late 90s. Today is the anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor, which brought the war to the U.S. You are invited to our fifth annual Holiday Extravaganza, which debuts Wednesday evening. It's a virtual event because of the pandemic, and tickets to the premiere are at cpr.org slash holiday. In 2016, when we began this holiday tradition and when everyone could be in the same room, we were thunderstruck by this performance. is colorado's own country music star claire dunn singing oh holy night okay in the years since she's been busy and that's true even during the pandemic which she has spent on her family's ranch in two buttes colorado in the southeastern corner of the state and claire dunn welcome back to colorado matters
3: hey so great to be back
0: yeah it's nice to have you Before COVID, you'd largely moved your life to Nashville. But as I said, you've been back on the ranch making music. How does that environment influence you as an artist?
3: Oh, man. Well, um, it just is the complete inspiration for for my music. Really, when I moved to Nashville and, you know, I've been living there, for several years now and then been on the road touring, Um, home is always the place that I'm trying to write about. Mm. It's always the place that is my initial inspiration. And so really for me, this year has kind of been a blessing in disguise because I've gotten to be in that environment where my inspiration really comes from. And I've just enjoyed the heck out of it. I I really can't tell you how awesome it's been to be back home. It's it's funny
0: you say that, you know, a country music artist spends a lot of time in Nashville, which is quite a big city, and on the road, Uh uh, which aren't necessarily always city locations. But uh, you've got to get back to the country. To write country music. Is that what I hear you saying? Oh,
3: absolutely. One thousand percent. It's something that um, at least my songwriter friends and I talk about and we all struggle with it. It's it's like, how can you write songs? You know, a typical year, for example, an ordinary year prior to now was. Um, basically just seeing dressing rooms and stages and buses and highways. And then when you didn't see that, you were at home seeing your laundry room, basically (laughs) doing laundry. So it made it kind of, you know, um, difficult to have that perspective and you have to live life in order to write about it and I think that's what is so great about country music is that's you know that's what we write about is our lives and so yeah I've gotten to get back to the farm the ranch the roots that I come from and the place that makes me who I am
0: well I have been a little obsessed with one of your newer songs it's called El Paso we're gonna hear some of that now you
2: Amorello eyes and I was free as Colorado skies out where the outlaws used to ride sage in the sand and the air is dry and we were wild like the desert wind and never thought about the consequence running headlong off into the night getting lost in the pool.
0: I just love when you hit El Paso. It's so big, Claire Dunn. It's such a big sound. How do you achieve that?
3: Oh, um, that's a really great question. I'm not really sure. I just get in my studio and um, I've, you know, in 2020, I've been really able to come into my own as my own producer. Um, I've been co-producing for all of my music for the past several years, but to now get to kind of take the wheel completely by myself has really been a new adventure, and I think you know the way my music sounds—it it just ends up being because of my passion for it. And I, anytime I'm in the studio working on a song, I'm just trying to um, really connect with the emotion, and that song is a very passionate one for me and. Um, you know, I I think that's where it all starts is just the passion.
0: So you're getting more creative control over your music.
3: Yeah, um, you know, I've been writing it and co-producing it, but now with 2020, and I've I've had a studio in my home for several years, and I've always been working in there when I was off the road. But um, you know, at the beginning of this year, nobody could go in the studios and work, and so I really just dove off the deep end. And um, just really started after it.
0: There were some places I had to look up in El Paso. Is that a town you know? Oh, yes. So the L&J describes itself as the old place by the graveyard. (laughs) I I guess it's it's just a really famous restaurant there?
3: It is. It's a wonderful uh, Mexican restaurant, and it's by the old graveyard where um, (laughs) the old outlaws, there's some old outlaws buried in El Paso, and... The, the enchilada recipe hasn't changed since 1927. Um, it's, and then the I guess the guys, what they told us at the restaurant when I was eating there was the guys at the military base used to train their mules and their donkeys to walk a path by themselves back and forth between the military base and the restaurant, and the donkeys would be loaded up with booze. This was during Prohibition. And they would walk back and forth on their own. And so they had a a little, you know, routine going on there. But they're great people. It's a family-owned place. And I just love it. It's one of my favorite places. I love
0: songs that make me Google places or, (laughs) you know, names. Uh, Okay, Claire Dunn, it's the holiday season, and you've released an EP with uh, three songs. One is the classic White Christmas. There are also two originals every day of the year. And I think the one you're going to play live for us called For Christmas. Do you want to say something about this before you perform it?
3: Yes. um, I wrote this song and I know we're all spending a lot of time at home right now. But the spirit of this song came for me when uh, in a normal year, like I was saying earlier, I don't get to be home much. And that longing for home or loved ones or family, just the, the place where you feel most comfortable is where this song came from. And so I just am so excited to share it with everyone. And it's called Want to Go Home for Christmas. And you can check it out everywhere online and hear it right here. Right so. here. <laughs>
2: like forever Since I've been back Santa won't you grant me one wish I wanna see it And everyone I love has been for a long year Since I've had any kind of real peace in my life been living in a world that I don't even recognize Recognize And I just wanna go, I just wanna go home for Christmas. Light up every wreath and watch the snow. As in this hear the sleigh bells ring. Let the choir sing. Wanna decorate the Christmas tree. I just wanna go home. Wanna go home for Christmas. Yeah. Oh, I remember him. still around i should have never left we were something special and maybe it's too late now but then again it's the season to believe and hope that maybe those feelings come back under mistletoe yeah. and i just wanna go Wanna cozy up, maybe fall in love, do some kissing under mistletoe. I just wanna go home, wanna go home for Christmas, yeah. Woo hoo. Woo Yeah, yeah. Cause I'm ready for some real peace in my life Yes, I'm ready for a world I can recognize Yeah And I just wanna go, I just wanna go home for Christmas Light up every wreath and watch the snow As it descends. Hear the sleigh bells ring Let the choir sing
0: Lovely, thank you, Claire Dunn. I just want to go home for Christmas, and uh, as we said, you've been home, and are you yeah. are you tending to your chores on the ranch?
2: <laughs> I
3: am, and I'm making lots of TikToks about them. So follow oh. me on TikTok.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what is your favorite chore and your least favorite chore?
3: Um, well, we had a baby calf that was born uh, pretty premature this summer, and uh, his name is Momo. And we have raised him on a bottle. My mom, uh, somehow, she kept him alive. It was a miracle that he even lived. And so he is now our pet steer. And he'll never leave the farm. So I love to feed Momo every day. He still gets a bottle and he's like a dog. Oh. In fact, he plays with the dogs. Um, <laughs> so he's my favorite chore. Probably my least favorite is doing anything when it's snowing. We had some snow yesterday and just doing anything out in the snow sucks. So yeah. <laughs> that's probably my least favorite.
0: <laughs> in, in just a few moments that we have left, uh, do you know of artists who are really struggling, who are suffering at this time? Um,
3: yeah, I think the, the music industry, you know, um, has really been hit hard. I think more so than artists suffering, I think artists are probably the luckiest group in a lot of ways, out of everyone involved in the music industry, but there's so many musicians, there's so many um, road guys, there's so many lighting guys, mm-hmm. sound guys, um, techs that, you know, are uh, in great years sometimes living paycheck to paycheck, and, you know, they're completely out of work. I mean, I know a drummer who is drum who drums for a really successful and prominent artist and Mm -hmm. he's had to start a window cleaning business so it's it's a really tough time out there and and i hope the music industry bounces back
0: um we do too yeah so and uh thanks so much for sharing your story and some of those around you
3: oh thank you thanks for having me and thanks for letting me have a place to share my story
0: Country music star Claire Dunn, who's just released an EP of Christmas music and several other new tracks this year. She's from Two Buttes, Colorado, in the southeastern corner of the state. Now, as we said earlier, Dunn was a guest on our first ever Colorado Matters Holiday Extravaganza, which is now in its fifth year. A virtual event this time because of the pandemic. Our headliner for 2020 is jazz luminary Ron Miles. The Grammy nominated cornetist has a special holiday treat for viewers, and I don't mean the chitlins he cooks every Christmas.
6: Chitlins are pig intestines. And so the cleaning of them
0: is quite a delicate endeavor and um, you have to be a very trusted person in the family to hold on to that seat. And so far, people have been very satisfied with my work,
1: if I may say so. <laughs> so so.
0: Premiere of the fifth annual Colorado Matters Holiday Extravaganza is this Wednesday evening at 6.30. There will be cooking, laughter, pets, and a lot of Colorado music. Join me and my co-host Avery Lill from the comfort of your home. Tickets
6: at cpr.org holiday. This is CPR News.